You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. I want to give you a little bit of context. Uh, when I say we're in a series of the book of Acts, is that we're studying the book of Acts, um, verse by verse or chapter by chapter, and we walk along with the storyline, and then we extract what we believe uh, God is speaking to us through that. So we're now in chapter 4, and uh, what, we have, what we have before this text is that Peter and John, two of the apostles, are walking one day towards the temple. They're going to prayer, as they usually do. They find a man uh, begging for money, and he's crippled, and instead of giving him money, they heal him. This creates a commotion. Uh, they, uh, people gather to see what happened. Peter stands up, starts preaching the gospel to them. Five people become Christian that day or convert. And, and, and the Bible says 5,000 men. So approximately, if they're only counting men, which was the typical way of doing this, um, probably closer to 10,000 people, including kids and women. Uh, this calls uh, or it calls the attention of the authorities. The authorities come. The authorities from the temple come, and uh, the authorities from Jerusalem come, and they they jail them. They put them in jail. They they arrest them. They try them, and at the end, they you can't find a way to put them in jail or punish them. So they release them. But before they release them, they threaten them, and they tell them, "Don't do this. Do not be preaching about this Jesus that supposedly you think came back to life." So they are released. They go back to their uh, friends, and they all pray together. And instead of praying for them to no longer go through this, they pray for more courage to continue to do the very thing that got them in trouble, which is preaching the gospel again. So they're praying, and then again the Holy Spirit falls on them, fills them, the whole place shakes, and that's when our text from today begins. So we're in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. And it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many uh, as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was, a, it was distributed to each as any had need. So uh, the first thing I want to remind us is that everything that I'm going to talk about, and in fact, everything that we see in the book of Acts is not a result of human uh, ability or skill. So it, is, it would be wrong for us to assume that the disciples were clever enough that they spread or, 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 or uh, achieved the spreading of the gospel all through the uh, known world in the first century. Uh, that would be wrong. It wasn't necessarily humans doing this. It was the Holy Spirit. And we argue now that the acts that we're looking at are not the acts of the apostles, but rather the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. And if you've picked up, I want to show you a little... A little um, chart or uh, how do you call this table or table sorry um sorry my main language is spanish so i struggle with this sometimes 
tabla. That's the, the word in Spanish. Um, there is a pattern that we see happening in the first few chapters of the Bible. And the first, the green line basically means there is a divine intervention. So in chapter 1, Jesus intervenes. He comes up from the dead, and then he addresses his disciples. He spends 40 days with them. What happens that is that he moves them, or he, uh, he moves them to obedience. He gives them commands, which they actually do. And then they had a, a, a little bit of a hardship, let's say. This will increase over time. They waited. And then they remain in community. And then we see this again happen in chapter 2. The Spirit comes, fills them in Pentecost. They proclaim the word in tongues. And the first thing that happens is they're mocked. But then the result of that is community. A new community of 3,000 people is formed. In chapter 3, we see this again. Jesus heals a man through Peter. There's a divine intervention. Then that leads them to proclaim the gospel to the people that gathered. What happens? They're arrested. What is the result of that? 5,000 people are added. Then we move on to chapter 4, and Peter is again filled with the Spirit as he's been tried in front of the whole leadership of the city of Jerusalem. Peter proclaims the gospel to the, leader, the leaders because he's filled with the Spirit. They are threatened by the leaders, and then we come to our text today. The community again gathers and shares everything in common, and this will continue to happen. In chapter 4, the believers are filled with the Spirit. Actually, this happened in chapter 4, uh, but in chapter 5, they, we see them proclaiming the Word of God again. They are arrested again, and the hardship continues to increase. They are not only arrested now, they are beaten because of the name of Jesus, which, by the way, we will see this later. They are happy that that happened to them. They, they are, they are uh, they're happy that they were counted worthy of uh, suffering like Christ. And they continue to meet from house to house. And this happens again. If we continue in chapter 6 and chapter 7, we'll see the arrest of Stephen, who's also filled with the Spirit, who preaches the gospel. And then the community flees. And the community not, on, not only stays in Jerusalem, now the community expands to the, to the rest of the world. So this is a little bit of like the pattern that we're seeing in this. So there's a divine intervention, intervention that leads to proclamation, usually encountered by a hardship, but the result of that is usually community, people gathered together. And this is what we see here. We see the latter part. We see that everything that they're doing is following this pattern. But I want to highlight this. Everything begins with divine intervention. In fact, if we talk about our faith as Christianity, it starts in that same way. As Christians, we don't believe that being a Christian is for the intelligent or the moral or the good person. That is not what we believe as Christians. To be a Christian is not because it starts with who you are. It doesn't. Being a Christian, in fact, starts with who God is and with God intervening in your life. Why? Because we're not smart, because we're not moral, and because we're not actually good people. That's why we are Christians, because we recognize that without God's intervention, we would not be standing here today. So everything that I'm going to talk about is not based on human ability or human effort. In fact, the book of Luke and the second book of Luke, which is Acts, both from the same author, which is Luke, emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit throughout and I want to make sure we understand everything we're going to talk about is a result of the Holy Spirit indwelling and acting through us. It is not our ability. 
Every time we preach the gospel, every time we're generous to people, we are not doing it on our own. It is the Spirit who does it. In fact, as I said, our text today begins right after this, Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And, when they, were, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So everything I'm going to talk about is the work of the Holy Spirit. What is it that the Holy Spirit leads us to do that we see in this text? The first one, and we talked about this two weeks ago, is that the Spirit leads us to proclaim the gospel. And I've, enti- I've titled this Spirit-Filled Gospel Proclamation. And if you see in verse 33, it says that with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. When we see uh, in the book of Acts, especially in this early chapter, is that someone, someone refers to the, 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 the testimony of the resurrection or the preaching of the resurrection. There is an emphasis of this because back then, as opposed to today, people were not necessarily doubting whether Jesus was an actual person or not. Most of the people that were listening to this right now actually saw Jesus. Most of these people did not say, oh, I don't believe in Jesus. They, it, it would be dumb. It was, it's literally like saying, I don't believe in Barack Obama or Donald Trump. It's like, yeah, you know them. You've heard about the news about them. So everybody knew who Jesus was. This was a famous person. The issue back then wasn't whether people believed or not in Jesus. The issue back then was whether he died or not. That was the, the key issue back then. And it continues to be the issue. So... Every time we see that they were proclaiming the resurrection or giving testimony of the resurrection, that meant that Jesus was still alive and he was still active and doing the things that he was doing before, but now he was doing it through his disciples. That is what's happening today. And the Holy Spirit fills them and it leads them to continue to share their faith. Talking about the resurrection of Jesus was the way the disciples proclaimed their faith. And this is a constant emphasis of the book of Acts. In fact, the entire book is about how the disciples shared the news everywhere they went. Because the result of being a Christian who understands that Jesus came back from the dead and now is been sealed by the Spirit is that we naturally, as a consequence of our salvation, preach the word of God, share our faith with others. That's what we do. If we have been sealed with the Spirit, if we have been baptized with the Spirit, then we now have the power to be witnesses of Jesus. I want to highlight again, this is not our power. In fact, this is what Jesus said to them. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, it is the Spirit who gives life. So, if you're a believer here, I want to tell you something. Every time you talk to someone, It is not you. It is not you who are convincing people. It is the Spirit who brings or gives life. You might think of yourself as uneducated or biblically inaccurate or to whatever you think of yourself. It doesn't matter. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are are spirit and life. But But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning, who's, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray them. And he said, 
This is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So, proclaiming the gospel for the Christian is a supernatural act that is done through us, but it does not depend on us. So I want to encourage us one more time. As I will continue to do this through the entire book of Acts, we need to share our faith. We need to open our mouth. We need to engage with people, have conversations. It does not matter if you are the best uh, evangelist, evangelist or apologist or whatever. No, it is the Holy Spirit that leads us to proclaiming, proclaiming the gospel, and he is the one who brings life to people. But there's my main point the other thing that the Holy Spirit leads us to do, and we see in this text clearly, and I want to point out as well, this already happened in chapter 2, and is the Holy Spirit fills us to sacrificial, or leads us to sacrificial generosity. And I've titled this Spirit-Filled Sacrificial Generosity. So if we look at the pattern again, we see the divine intervention, we see the proclamation, the hardship, and the result is always community. The result of all these things is always community. So following this pattern, this group unites. And we, we, we see this in verse 32. If you look at your Bible, or you can look at the screen. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. So that would be the, the, how we should characterize a church. That we are all united in one um, soul and one heart. And sometimes we, we, sometimes we think that if we're truly Christians, all of us would agree in almost everything. But that's not necessarily what this text is saying. It's not possible for all of us to agree on everything. Even if, if we were just to say, okay, we're all going to go out to eat, I, uh, I am pretty sure we're going to spend quite a amount of time to make sure that we choose one place where all of us can eat. So it doesn't mean that we're all the same or that we all think the same. It means that we love each other. So when, when we are told that the disciples are of one heart and one soul, what that meant is that they loved each other deeply. Remember, I don't know if this is something that happens to you, but when I have flashes or images of the early church, I see just a bunch, I, I almost only see the disciples like in Jerusalem preaching and being beaten and like all this stuff that happens to them. As if it's like a gang of guys just trying to get away from being stoned or something like that. that that's usually what comes to my mind. But if you look at the text, this is almost 10,000 people. Now, the full number of those who believed, what was the full number? If you've been doing the math, it's pretty simple. Since chapter Two, it was a hundred and something on the, on the first chapter, and that jumped from that to 3,000 more, and then 5,000 more, give and take. So we're, we're way past the 10,000 mark. So this is a mega church in Jerusalem that happened overnight in, the, in less than two weeks, or around that time. And this text is saying us that, or telling us that these people were of one heart and one soul. They're in the main capital of the nation, Jerusalem. And this was a big church. So there's no way they all agree in everything. In fact, there were people that were not necessarily from Jerusalem. Some of them were from other places. It was a metropolitan city. What that means is that they loved each other and they were united in Christ. 
But they experienced a level of unity and love that we barely see today. One of the evidences of this unity and love that we are told is that they put their money where their mouth was. Or in more biblical terms, they put their money where their heart was. This is the radical way they loved each other. And Jesus talked about this in the book of Luke, in chapter 12. The words of Jesus became a reality for this, guys. Luke chapter 12, verses 32 to 34 says, Fear not, little flock. Oh, thank you. See, my wife knows that my mouth is... Thanks, baby. Thanks, Joel. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This, this group of people, these Christians, put their money where their heart was. They were of one heart and one soul, meaning they actually loved each other. But it wasn't like we're used to. It wasn't just only talk, right? Because nowadays you go online and you talk about church community, and it's such an amazing topic. It's so cool to talk about how the church is family and how we're a community, and there's an emphasis on community. That's awesome. But when it comes to the reality of walking the talk, a lot of us shy away. And what we see in this text is precisely a challenge for that. Sacrificial generosity was the way these people lived because they loved each other. Look at what verse 32 says. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Verse 34 says, There was not a needy, needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Some of us have, to, have, have heard these verses many times as we've uh, been Christians for a long time. And I mentioned the, in chapter 2, that there is a little bit of a split in how theologians talk about this. And it is an interesting split. I'm just going to state it, and you decide for your own what your take would be. And you can also, and I would encourage you to, to look at this. But we have theologians from what we call, not necessarily agree with that term, but that's what people call first world countries. And a lot of, the, a lot of theologians from first world countries, where poverty is probably minimal or not as prominent, they say that this was a practice that didn't last long. We don't have a lot of evidence about it later in the, in the book. And therefore, it's just a honeymoon phase for the church. So we should not look at this and say, hey, maybe we should try that. No, 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 that's, that's just from the past. That is a very utopian way of looking at the church. Then you have theologians from what people believe are third world countries, right, where poverty and suffering is more prevalent. And they look at this, and they say, this is amazing. Look at how radical this is. 
Imagine if we were to implement this in our churches, if we truly loved each other this way, how much does the church would help, not only the church, but its community? So, you have a pastor and a preacher from a third world country, so you know which one is probably my enemy. And the reality is that it is easy to explain away what's uncomfortable for us. But if we're going to be honest, in a lot of our countries, and I am also an American now, money is an idol. Comfort is an idol. It is precisely what has formed who we are, right? The idea of, of the American dream is the idea of reducing discomfort and pain as much as you can and increasing money and comfort as much as you can. So, of course, reading something like this not only sounds uh, difficult to swallow, it also sounds, and many would have even done the, the, the jump, which I believe is a huge jump that we should not do, is like, oh, well, this is, this is the Bible supporting communism, and it is not. Let me just tell you that. But it is, it is a verse that challenges how the church is different from the culture outside of us. Because even though this does not uh, just abolishes private property, because it doesn't. It actually, what it does, it actually shows how, how private property can be used for the benefit of others through gospel generosity. And that's exactly what we are seeing here. That the gospel creates a community where the other person is no longer a stranger, is my brother. is someone I love. So the gospel creates a community that practices what I call sacrificial generosity. The gospel creates a community where everyone shared everything. They had everything in common. The gospel creates a community where there was no needy people. And yes, we're talking about money. And this is difficult to talk about. But the church should be a place that is radically characterized by generosity. And again, there's ways where we can take this in a different way and we can talk about, well, well, let's not focus on money. Why, why only money? The church is only after my money. And that's true. And this is hard to talk about because we live in a society where it is absolutely disgusting to hear and see what some people who call themselves Christians are doing with the money from other people. And yes, you're absolutely right. There are believers and Christians that exploit others and try to get enriched themselves at the expense of their flock. And that I would absolutely condemn. And the Bible would as well. There's, there's pages on social media that are preacher, preachers and sneakers and pastors showing off their shoes that are $1,000 or more. I don't even know. I don't even want to name the prices. And now I just found out through another pastor that told me that there's now the preachers and watches page. Go on Netflix, and there's at least four different shows that talk about this. And not only in America, also in other places. Yes, I understand this is hard. Yes, I understand it might be a sensitive topic to talk about in church. Yet, the Bible does instruct us to be generous as a church. So I want to I knock out out of the way one of the topics that is hard to talk about. 
And it's very controversial. Tithing. I see your smiles. I know tithing, there's so many positions on tithing. And people say, no, this is no longer for today. Yes, it is. No, it is not. There's a blessing tied to it. No, Malachi, whatever, all those things. And I grew up in a Pentecostal church. And I've seen it almost everything. But I want to tell you what our position as a church is in tithing. And I really like this position. We agree that the practice of sacrificial giving uses or utilizes the same concept of tithing from the Old Testament, but it takes it to a greater extent or level. So as a church, we would affirm that giving to one's local church is a sacrificial response to the gospel that goes above and beyond the Old Testament command of giving only 10% of one's income to the church. We emphasize the above and beyond aspect and believing that the New Testament does not abolish the old one, but rather builds on it and raises it from the level of rules and laws to be kept to the new level of love and joy in response to the gospel. And this is what we see Jesus doing, not only with tithing, but with many other different things. A lot of people say, well, Jesus abolished the law. But if you look at some of the things about the law, Jesus didn't necessarily abolish them. He actually raised the bar on them. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, you will see that Jesus says about murder. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And Jesus doesn't say, don't worry about that, forget about that. No, he raises the bar and says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hellfire. Jesus goes to the behavioral aspect to a deeper level, which is now your heart. And he does the same with other topics. The perfect example, the one that we mostly know about is lust, right? He continues to say in Matthew 5, 27, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart. Jesus does the same this with divorce, retaliation, love of enemies, fasting, praying. He goes above and beyond the law and raises it. And what we believe in this church is that this New Testament level of generosity is better than the Old Testament. So the gospel increases or raises the bar, and it doesn't abolish it. It's no longer 10% because that's considered now the lowest bar. Now it's a response to the gospel that leads us to radical and sacrificial generosity, not only to the church, but to everyone around us. The Old Testament was very particular about laws, right? And the the Jews have laws in Deuteronomy about uh, tithing and what to do with their harvest and their houses. Leviticus 23 gives us actual explicit commands about if you were a farmer, you were not supposed to pick up any fruit or any part of your harvest that fell on the ground that was left for the poor and the widow. So we have all these laws that we're, we're supposed to be kept in line with. And Malachi actually tells us that we should tithe. Yes. But Jesus doesn't talk about that again. Jesus moves on to a new level of generosity. And it's a resemblance of who he is. 
he gave himself entirely and he asks us to do the same with him with others this is what makes the christian different from the jew in so many different aspects is that we don't see this as a command we see it as a response to the love and generosity that god showed us look at how uh, john says it in first john 3 16 to 18 by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What's the basis of the love that, that John is telling us to, to have? Is God's love. We are supposed to act in the way that God acted towards us. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in, in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John is actually making this link it's not about 10%. You can give your 10% and care less about the other person. You, you're just doing it to mark and, and just palomita. ¿Cómo se dice eso? Check mark. You can do that. You can be a legalistic, absolutely not caring about the other person, and you just do it out of just obedience. And that's what Jesus is exactly saying that we should not do. We should do it out of the love of God that's in us, and now that love moves us to love the other person. So we're no longer thinking of the minimum because now we're unattached to our material positions. The love of money is now the root of all kinds of evils, as 1 Timothy says. We now are free from money or possessions, and now we can do what Jesus said in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And what we're looking at the, uh, today in this text is people who serve God. The Holy Spirit, who is the one doing this, moves us, leads us to sacrificial generosity. It is not our own strength. It is not our own power. It is supernatural power and love that only comes from God. So we don't have to try to do it, do it on our own. I've been in places, and if you're a Pentecostal like me, you probably have seen this. When I was in college, there was this pastor that they invited, and he was huge on sowing and reaping. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those um, revivals where they do that. So this is, a, this is a college, so we're all broke, of, of course. And uh, so the guy's talking and challenging us to be generous, right? Because, because what? God is going to bless us. So he says, who, I don't know, I don't, I don't remember, Carla was there. Um, and so he, he tells people, come to the front and make it publicly. So people start coming, and they start giving each other stuff that did not even belong to them. Some of them were giving their tuition money to other guys, and the, the school was like, what is happening here? I got a free piano. Uh, uh, I, I got a trip to Europe. Uh, and it happened. This guy actually did it. There's, other, there's a, lot, a lot of stories. But it was all based on guilt. It was, uh, so what happened is that somebody stood up, and then everybody was like, I have to do something. 
So people stood up and started giving away their stuff. It was just guilt. And that's how a lot of times we function as well. And we can be, quote, unquote, generous by guilt. But what we see here is not that. What we see here is people that were caught up by the love of God and they loved each other so much that they could not see the other family without food and say like, all right, well, I have this extra thing. I'm going to sell it here. Eat. That's what they were doing. It was love. It was out of love. They were of one heart and soul. And they got rid of the need in their church. That's what we are talking about here. And the last thing we see is that it was brought to the, it was brought to the apostles. The, the, the say is that they were laid at the apostles' feet, meaning it was given to the apostles, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is important, again, because it wasn't just you giving it to the other person. It was done through the church. There was an understanding of the community that was formed and the leadership of that community that made everything fair. And again, I want to recognize one more time that when we say that today, it does not necessarily ring in our minds as fair because our conception of churches nowadays is not of fairness. Yet, that doesn't excuse the fact that we have to do it because the, the, the church that God created is not I don't even consider those churches, honestly. But if we have a correct understanding of church and our community, we need to understand that this was not just something that was done in the back of a room without nobody knowing. It was something that was done through the leadership of the church. And this places a heavy burden on the leadership of a church. And now I'm preaching to myself and to Andrew and to Lars and everyone who's, who's a leader here in the church. They had the responsibility to administer this. They were stewards of what people were giving them. And this is a challenge for us as leaders to be transparent and to be trustworthy. And I want to encourage us to do that. And I also want to encourage you to look for that in us. And I want to tell you that one of the things that promotes the fact that our church is like that is that there is no accountability or there is fake accountability. If the people of the church were to keep their leaders accountable, we would avoid this. So I want to tell you and I want to give you, uh, I, I want to give you the responsibility to keep us accountable. You, as a member of a church, are absolutely entitled, and you should be asking us, how are we handling money? What are we doing with our money? The day you, you see me roll in in a Rolls Royce, then ask a question, please. It's not okay for you to just sit down and keep your mouth shut. It's not okay. Because then you become complicit. As a part of the church, you should be looking after us in the same way that we look after you. It is a reciprocal relationship. The fact that I am a pastor doesn't make me better than you. It makes me part of your community. I am not a better, more moral person than you, and you need to keep me accountable in the same way I keep you accountable. You need to pray for me in the same way I pray for you. I am not above anyone. A correct understanding of church will allow us to be a generous, a generous church that utilizes everything that God has given us 
for the benefit of our church, the needy in our church, and our community around us. I've heard this say many times, that NGOs have done the work that the church has failed to do. And I, I believe that. I'm not saying that it's wrong to, to work with an NGO, no. But the reality is that it is our responsibility many times to do those, some of those works. And now, as a church, we're partnering with NGOs who are doing it way better. And why not? Learn from them. Yes, absolutely. So this is the message for us today. And if you're a believer, I want to tell you, God has loved us. He has given his most precious son for us. He has given us salvation by grace. He has lived a perfect life for us. He died on a cross to pay for our sins. He resurrected on the third day to give us life without us deserving, deserving in it. And God is generous with us. He has made us his children. He has adopted us. And now we can do the same for others in the exact same way. Matthew 8, 10, 8 says, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without paying. And if you're here and you're listening to this and it's foreign to you or you're not a believer, I want to tell you that God cares about you, not only spiritually, but also physically. God is interested in giving you life. In fact, the Bible says that the message of the gospel brings life to people. And it's not just life sometime in the future when you're dead. No, it's life abundant that starts right now. God cares about you. He cares about your relationships. He cares about your status. He cares about what's happening to you right now. But he mostly cares about your soul. Because one day, this body is going to perish. And one day, we're going to spend eternity. And you have two options. Spend it with God or spend it without God. And we would love and God would love for you to spend it with him. Jesus has done everything for you. And as I said before, being a Christian is not about how moral or smart or educated or anything you are. It's not about you. Christianity is not about our works. Christianity is about the works of someone else. And that someone else is Jesus. Christianity is about what has been done in our place by Jesus, not what we can do. His Christianity is about the fact that Jesus lived the perfect life righteous, moral life that you and I cannot live. Christianity is about that Jesus went to the cross and suffered in our place and paid for our sins, our horrible sins that deserve punishment. He took them on the cross and he was crucified on our behalf and he declares us forgiven. He cleanses us. He gives us a new life without us deserving it. And what is it that we did to deserve that? Nothing. We do not deserve it. We're not good. We don't do anything. It is him who does everything. That is the message of Christianity, that God has stepped into our lives. He has intervened in our lives. And because of that, we can get salvation. That is our message. And that he is generous He doesn't only say he loves us and created this earth and dropped us in and then let's see what happens. No, he created us and put this earth for us and placed us here and goes after us and dies for us and brings us back to him. That is the generous God we serve.
And if you're here and, li and you're listening to this, uh, I want to ask you, respond to this. Come to Jesus. Repent from your life. L repenting from your life is, is only recognizing that what you have been doing is what you want. And that you have ignored what God says and what he wants. And that you have taken your life in your own hands. And now what God says is, let me take the reins of your life. Give me the reins of your life. That is repentance. It's saying, I'm sorry for doing everything my way. Let's do it your way. And you turn 180 degrees and come back to God. You repent. You respond and you place your faith in Jesus. And God's arms are wide open for you. So what does this mean for all of us? Let's consider what God has given to, to us. Money, yes, number one. And how can we share with others? How can we as a church steward the money that we have in a better way to meet the needs inside our church how can we as a church store the money we have in better ways to meet the needs of people outside of our church how can we not only say that we love god and love people but demonstrate it with our money let's put our money where our heart is as christians let's pray dear jesus we thank you because you are a good god who has not only said that you love us, you have given yourself entirely for us. Thank you, because you are a good God. Help us be generous. Help us love each other deeply and truly. And Lord, I pray that if anyone here needs a divine intervention to bring about salvation, I pray that you'll do it right now. In the name of Jesus, I pray.